This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 391st episode, we have an interview with Tito and Aline, who are really fascinating science communicators from Brazil with books, videos, and even dinosaur games that they've brought together to teach all sorts of cool stuff about dinosaur science. Yes, and they're also paleontologists. They're doing it all. Yeah. <laughs> We also have Dinosaur of the Day, Stegoceratops, and a fun fact. But before we get into all of that, as always, we like to thank some of our patrons. And this week, we'd like to thank DC Kasundra, Dennis Saltasaurus, English Graham, Jonah, Sezisaurus, Misunderstood Overactor, Trent Carbajal, Ellen, Pipaceratops, and Verociraptor. Thank you so much to everybody of your support. We say this every week. It means so much to us, and it's how we keep the show going. So thank you for being part of our dinosaur community. And without further ado, we're going to go on to our interview with Tito and Aline. But as always, we got talking for a long time, and <laughs> we didn't fit it all into this episode. So if you'd like the unabridged version, the longer extended cut, Make sure to head over to the premium content feed that you get through patreon.com slash inodino. We're joined this week by Tito Aureliano, a paleontologist, geologist, science communicator, and researcher at the University of Campinas and UFRN, as well as Aline Gilargi, a scientist, science communicator, and professor of paleontology also at UFRN. Thank you both so much for joining me and Sabrina. <laughs> Thank you, Garrett and Sabrina, for the invitation. We are very happy to be here with you. This podcast is amazing. It's great to be part <laughs> of one of the episodes. Thank you. Thank you so much. So I know you've both done field work in the outback in Northeast Brazil the past six years, which is very exciting to us because usually we talk about the Australian outback, but there's, there's a lot more out there. The Brazilian outback. Yeah. Would you mind telling us a little bit about your work and some of your findings so far? Okay. Usually people think that Brazil is all about Amazon forest, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> but here we have several biomes. So you can find the Cerrado area, which is pretty much like the African savanna. And here in Northeast Brazil, we have something very similar to the Australian outback. So it's a pretty dry region where you have a very specific type of vegetation. That's why it's called the Caatinga, which means the white vegetation. 
And Northeast Brazil is one of the richer regions in phosphocytes. Specifically, we are used to work in the Araripe region and in the Vale do Rio do Peixe region. So the Araripe region, people are more used to because since it's a very famous fossil Lagerstätte, where you have the Santana group with the Crato and Romualdo formation, many, several beautiful fossils, such as Ubirajara, which was recently described. Mm-hmm. And, well, raised some concerns, right? <laughs> and also, Irritator and many spinosaurids and yeah. so on. They mm-hmm. all come from this area, the pterosaurs. So this is like in the heart of Brazilian outback. And we also are used to work in the Valle do Rio do Peixe region, where we have a huge mega track site. So several footprints from the late Cretaceous. You can find uh, um, sauropod tracks, many theropod tracks, all in the middle of the beautiful scenario of the Brazilian outback. Tito, have something to say about that region? No, I absolutely love it. My ancestry comes from Northeast Brazil, from this area. I grew up in the, in the Midwest, but my whole family come from there. So for me, it's very special mm-hmm. to work in this area, you know, because it's my own history that's in there. Yeah. So it's a, well, it's a very dry region indeed. And just a bit of curiosity, the cactus that invaded Australia are from Northeast Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> so a bit of the outback, of the Australian outback uh, cactus um, can also be found here in Northeast Brazil. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. So even more similar biomes than previously. <laughs> yeah, alien species, right? <laughs> Is it similar to the Australian outback in that it's pretty like wide open, not a lot of people, not a lot of city development, or is it more developed than the Australian outback? I think it is much more populated than the Australian outback. I have never been there in Australia, but from what I've seen from Landsat images, Google Earth and so on, it is very much more populated and mm-hmm. a little bit more vegetated. There is a current tendency of desertification there. So the climate's getting progressively drier. Mm. That's a problem because historically, all the peasants and cowboys, there is a very strong cowboy culture there. They are very characteristic. They use a different hat from from the cowboys of the South Mm -hmm. and the cowboys from North America. It's a very unique hat. I might Google it, you're going to see it. It looks like an 18th century hat. And many of these people, they lose their cattle because we go there during the dry season and the cattle dies. So they go to the big cities, they move in crowds. And this is a huge problem for the country to develop this area, to bring water, to bring jobs. So it's a very complicated area. This is why we say... People are vulnerable there. Mm. Yeah, in short, we can say it's more populated than the Australian outback, but it's still not populated as the rest of Brazil since uh, the dryness of the region brings very harsh conditions to people that live there. So the people that live there, they suffer from famine and, well, things that comes with the harsh conditions of being in an outback, right? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, we see many abandoned farms and houses uh, close to the outcrops because people simply can't live there. Mm. So it sounds like field work might be a little difficult to do too. Definitely. Temperatures are very high, so you have to be constantly worried about not dehydrating. You have a specific vegetation there that looks like... That's awful. That's awful. <laughs> it looks like cat claws. It's just oh, you get stuck in every shrub around the, the Katinga area. Oh, so no. it's really hard to work there. That I think this beach bush, you know, we don't have there in, in the Sonora Desert. They don't have in Patagonia. They don't have in Africa. That's the worst thing. We always comment when we are watching those survival documentaries that they, they oh, throw no the guys. You you never no. see an episode of someone going into the Brazilian cutting. <laughs> it's, it's, the bush there is awful. It's like the spines are curved like cat claws oh. and they hurt you. So I, I used to say that Katinga loves you so much that you get stuck on it. And poisonous plants, if you if you are unaware of that, that's they are very common. Mm-hmm. If you just pass by the plant and it touches your skin, it, it will it will eat like... yeah, it burns Ooh. and itches like hell. <laughs> oh, yeah, no. so it's it's hard. <laughs> that is it. hard. Makes me maybe understand why people like the Hell Creek so much because there's none of that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Totally. <laughs> Interesting. So where are there any specific sites that you've been to that you found something exciting or you really enjoyed for another reason? I pretty much enjoyed the several sites around the Souza Basin, which is one of the Valle do Rio do Peixe basins there. Since we have some footprints with exceptionally preserved condition, even skin impressions, sometimes filamentous impressions yeah. that pretty much look like patterns, and that's awesome. And you also have um, mud cracks preserved very much like the recent mud cracks. So it's very confusing because we're in a dry region. So full of mud cracks because of the drying of the rivers and lakes in the region. And suddenly you have mud cracks in the rock with dinosaur footprints. So people that live there usually are confused and think that the huge dinosaur footprints are more were made more recently than they really are. Mm-hmm. So the regional people used to explain those big dinosaur footprints as the rare, you know, the mm-hmm. large white bird, as the rare footprints and the cow footprints. So <laughs> between the theropods and the ornithopods and sauropod footprints, <laughs> they have their own taxonomy, you know. <laughs> it's very interesting. I really like how they they figure out to, to, to name stuff there. So it's a gorgeous region because of this l- very large dinosaur tracks. Some tracks have more than 60 individual tracks. So they're long and, and beautiful. The, the environment around, it's just gorgeous. And that's my favorite. I want, I'm really interested to know what's the favorite side from, yeah. from Tito. <laughs> it's hard for me to, to pick just one. I, I love the Sosa context, especially because it's, it's the bottom of the Cretaceous. So we don't have much information about this moment. And there is a local extinction of Ornithischians. Yeah, mm. you can see it through in, the structure of In this part of Colin. South America, yeah. At this point, 
and we can see a connection and um, faunal equivalence between North Africa and Iberia and even England <laughs> with Northeast Brazil which at is this time. totally different from Southeast and South Brazil yeah. which are <laughs> very similar to the yeah. Argentinian fauna yeah that's very different but I like the Araripe Basin, the Kerry part of the outback, because we have many spinosaurids. You have plenty of fossils. Mm -hmm. So if you have low esteem and you have difficulty of finding fossils, you just go to the Romualdo Formation or to the Crado <laughs> Formation. You you stumble Guys, into something. It's just know. unbelievable. I usually when the team is very like not feeling very good for not finding fossils, just take them to the Aripi area because you're going to just cheer up everybody. <laughs> like hundreds of fossils in, in, in an hour. It's yeah. unbelievable. Wow. What can be frustrating is that most of the fossils, since we do not work with fish, <laughs> we, we get frustrated because we work with dinosaurs and it, this is a coastal marine environment. Yeah, so it's fish, so. fish, fish again. Oh, another fish. <laughs> if you're lucky, you find a turtle in a year or maybe a pterosaur <laughs> in two years. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the fish are beautifully preserved, some of them, even with color patterns. If you're lucky, you can find some feathers. So that's awesome too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Many insects, aquatic insects. And it's beautiful because since it's illuminated limestone, it's pretty much like uh, going and seeing each page of a great book. So mm. it's a gorgeous yeah. sight. But my favorite area of the outback is oh. the most <laughs> uncharted and unreached area. It's the Upper Jurassic, oh, closer to the San Francisco River. I, I have been there like three times for field work. I found fossils of um, mausonid, silicons, uh, other fish, lepidots, like some ichnofossils, but they are very shy. And the problem <laughs> is uh, the San Francisco area, it's like the Brazilian Mississippi. It's yeah. the equivalent of the Mississippi River. Mm -hmm. It's the San Francisco River, but in a very arid landscape with canyons and so on. Mm, and this area specifically has a great potential, but it's but very, it's very diff very hard and dangerous. Guys, to get it's there. like the Wild West. I'm, yes. I'm not kidding. Uh, we have We've got forgotten to, to to explain that the Brazilian outback, it's like an area that got lost in time. Like we have technology, we have smartphones and so on in town, but the whole structure is feudalistic. It's like medieval. <laughs> so we have the landowners, you have the churches, you have people that work like samurais and bounty hunters and oh, wow. just like the Wild West. And unfortunately, you have the drug trafficking there. Yeah. So that's what make it very much like the wild. Yes. Yeah. That's oh, really dangerous. And they plant the drugs alongside the Jurassic outcrop oh. in this river. So it's really dangerous. For Just an idea. The last time I've been there, there was a gang of 20, no, of 40 bandits riding on horses 
assaulting so banks. Yeah, it's, it's wow. just like in the movies. Wow. Jeez. So. But it's like just that region, guys. Don't be scared. Yeah, <laughs> that's specifically specifically this area of the outback that it's very isolated. Okay. So unfortunately, I always want the hardest thing, you know. <laughs> and just to say a, a beautiful thing of the Brazilian outback, you all are invited to visit the UNESCO Geopark that is uh, right up in their area. So the Araripe Geopark is right there, mm. far away from this Jurassic <laughs> area Tito just mentioned. And it's really touristic. You can visit, for example, this Araripe, very famous Araripe sites I mentioned, the laminated limestones. And cool. you can mm. visit all these famous sites and it's just a beautiful region. You wow. all are like really invited to visit. <laughs> we really want to go. When we start traveling again, that's Brazil is Yay. one of the countries we want to go see. <laughs> Absolutely. We got the recent book by Giuseppe Leonardi about all the trackways up there. Oh, and nice. That's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. It oh, yeah. sounds awesome. So you learn a lot about the, the Vale do Peixe area. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> I did want to ask, you mentioned the the tracks that have filaments in them. And I saw that was mentioned, it was either at a talk or a poster at SVP 2021. Yeah. And I couldn't even imagine what that's like. Do they, are they on like the bottom of the track? Or are they sort of sticking out to the sides? Or how does that look? No, that's a, a really interesting structure associated to the track. So you have a, a pretty unique track where the animal just slows down and slip a bit in one side as it is walking through a very unstable sediment, uh-huh. so muddy area. And suddenly there is this structure that looks like part of the body of the animal just touched the sediment and this is all filaments oh that's so cool yeah. <laughs> it's a concavenator size theropod like yeah, something wow. of yeah. concavenator size pretty 14 much feet. and it's an incredible because you can see any uh filament in the tracks but suddenly this structure where part of the animal body touched the the mud that's just full of filaments and nothing like plants, nothing like any of this. So you're describing it and I'm sure that that will be published soon. That's amazing. That is so cool. I want to see that. <laughs> That's worth a trip cool. on its own. <laughs> Great. Cool. So you mentioned Ubi Rajara, which is a huge thing right now originally it was described with interesting feathers and then later people were like well that looks a little weird maybe that's not actually how it's described and we had wondered well maybe the reason that it was described maybe and not reviewed as thoroughly as it could have been is because there was so much controversy around the specimen and the fact that it's now housed in germany even though there was a law in Brazil in 1990 saying you can't be exporting fossils like this. Yeah. And there was an even earlier law that basically said the same thing. Yeah. What do you guys, I mean, I can assume what your opinion would be, but I'd like to <laughs> hear what you have to say about Ubi Rajara. Okay, before anything, it's very important to note something here because I know you guys just love dinosaur as we do. Mm-hmm. So do you guys remember when the first non-avian dinosaur with feathers was published? Hmm. Was Are, that in the 1990s? We're not including Archaeopteryx, right? That one's too avian. Not including Archaeopteryx, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking... Is it one of the ones from China? 
ooh, yeah, those are pretty avian. I don't know. There's the first one I think of is probably the Uteranus, maybe, or a Guanlong, maybe one of those Tyrannosauroids in like the nineties. The um, Compsognathids. The Compsognathids, yeah. yeah. So oh. one of them was Cynosauropteryx. And hmm. if I'm not wrong, I gotta check it before I'm saying anything. Wrong. I guess it was in 2000 <laughs> I think or it, 2001. No, Cynosauropteryx was in 1996, exactly. Oh. So okay. that's what I wanted to know because Ubirajara left Brazil in 1995. So if it was described when it was found there, it would be the first non-avian dinosaur described with feathers. So it was for 25 years in a German museum, in a drawer there, waiting for something to happen. So Mm -hmm. it will be the first non-avian dinosaurs with feathers to be known from the southern hemisphere. So after 25 years, we finally got a description. And most of the uh, Brazilian paleontological community was very interested in the finding because it's scientifically very important, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even 25 years later, it's the first feathered, uh, non, non-avian feathered dinosaur described for the Southern Hemisphere. So that's a landmark for us. Yeah. But also we were very amazed because, well, we have the 1942 law that just prohibits fossils from being sold in Brazil. So you can sell fossils, you can collect and sell fossils here. They're considered uh, patrimony of the union. Mm. And as patrimony of the union, uh, the Brazil, you need permits to extract and to export it. Then we have the 1990 law that specifically regulates the export permits. So you don't need an only a permit to a specific permit to extract but a specific permit to export. Mm. And you need all holotypes to be back in Brazil. So that's the problem. The holotype is there in Germany. It's not here. Since it's not here, it's against the 1990 law. So everybody that wants to work with Brazilian fossils, they are allowed to. You can even take them out of Brazil. But you got to just have the right permits and follow some specific rules, Mm -hmm. such, for example, holotypes and other specimens of national interest must be returned to Brazil. And 30% of all other taxa identified at any time also must return to Brazil. Considering that, yes, Ubirajara is not legally in German, according to Brazilian law. Mm -hmm. That's why every Brazilian paleontologist was very concerned about the situation. The authors just um, released in the newspaper supposed permit for exporting, which is not according to Brazilian law, so does not follow the regulations from our country. It just mentions that two boxes full of fossils left Brazil in the 1995. Doesn't mention how many fossils could be just a thousand. I don't know. We don't even know if Ubirajara was inside because it doesn't specify which fossils. Hmm. And it doesn't include the specific permit from the science and technology ministry. So it's wrong. It's the wrong permit. And uh, since the fossil is important, since the fossil could give visibility to the locality, the vulnerable locality where the fossils come from, mm-hmm. 
then many paleontologists started to, well, let people know about Brazilian laws, the importance of fossils being returned to Brazil and so on. So that's the big controversy. Mm-hmm. And Tito, what do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> I think people should respect one another better. If you have colleagues from different country and there are strict laws in this country and these people are humans just like you, they are not inferior humans. Mm-hmm. So why dehumanize other nations just to steal their patrimony, their natural resources, their scientific resources. We are not in the 19th, 19th century, you know, you're in the 21st century. So these things are things of the past. We the world developed. We live in a globalized world. Mm-hmm. We have Thousands of museums and laboratories here in South America now, all in many countries, and Brazil and Argentina, a lot, Peru, a lot. So for people that don't know, we have more than 800 paleontologists in Brazil actively working with research and lecture. So wow. it's a wow. lot. I that didn't might... know there were so many. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and we have more than 70 graduate programs specialized in paleontology. Awesome. Besides more than 80 mu- museums with fossils or fossil exhibitions. So we have a lot of things here. So it's it doesn't stick very good saying, well, you guys don't have Brazilian paleontologists either. You don't have <laughs> museums mm-hmm. or you don't have, well, structure to, to, yeah. to study those fossils. Yeah, obviously well, not true. Yeah. <laughs> And that's why we work so much with science communication, because mm-hmm. we want not only Brazilians to know about their heritage, their scientists, their science, but also people from abroad, so from other countries, to know what we have here. So that's why we engage so much besides our paleontologists' work with science communication. Yeah. yeah. And I know you work with uh, science decolonization, too. Exactly. That's very important. And we, as the new generation of paleontologists, must work together to make our field more ethical and to diversify our field, because this only has advantages. So Mm -hmm. one example, a simple example, if we have cooperation between different countries, we can have better science. So Brazilians know pretty well their own sedimentary basins, their fossils, and so on. So a cooperation between, for example, German scientists and Brazilian scientists studying a great fossil such as Ubirajara will end in a much better science, much better article than it actually was published. In oh, yeah. Especially, I mean, research. you're losing all of the people. It, it's one thing. It's still pretty wrong, but it's one thing when... You're talking about a country where there might not be a paleontologist, which there are very few, if any, that have no paleontologists. But when you're talking about an area like you guys, where you're literally already there all the time studying this stuff, you have a lot of expertise in the area. You have to include like just it doesn't make any sense to publish a paper about an animal from that area. You always include the expert on that either animal type, like if you're going to publish on a troodontid usually you see like phil curry or somebody on it who studies a lot of these Mm -hmm. but you always get the person from the area too because they're going to have a lot of information to add so yeah you're you're definitely right you got to have 
not even just from a what's right and wrong ethically standpoint, but what's best for the science. You got to have the local scientists included. I just love your comment. <laughs> and I will add more. You, you said, for example, if you have an area that you don't have local scientists, so why not work to help train local scientists? Mm -hmm. So you can also work on that. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're really, one of the places we're most excited about are some of these areas in Africa where there aren't a lot of local scientists, but now there are new universities popping up and there's more training going on. Mm -hmm. And we've been seeing way more fossils come out of those areas. We're seeing new sauropods popping up. Mm -hmm. It is, it's amazing. Yeah. Totally. And I do think that like foreign countries can collaborate in that. So together, right? Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Everything works better when people are collaborating because different perspectives lead to better results. Mm -hmm. Literally. Literally. That's great. <laughs> So uh, going back to science communication more specifically, you both have a very popular YouTube channel, Bone Collectors, and I know you do a lot of broadcasts and you talk about paleontology in Portuguese. It's what, the largest channel in Portuguese about paleontology? Yeah, um, it started as a blog. Alini created this blog. Yeah, remember science blogs, guys? <laughs> It was part of science blogs. I now think they're still out there. Like a fossil. <laughs> they are. They, 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 they are indeed. So the blog is a fossil now. Well, <laughs> not to say it's a, it's a living fossil because I still published something. It started as a blog in 2010. And then Tito came in with the yeah. audiovisual stuff. Yeah, I always wanted to, to work with documentaries and indie movies and so on. Mm -hmm. And when I was an undergrad, I convinced Alini to document our fieldwork. I was already documenting fieldwork early in the university, doing fieldwork in, in the Amazonia, in Patagonia. And we decided to start filming all over Brazil, where we go. So... I guess we were one of the first to do that. Well, we were, yes, yeah. we were. Like, we awesome. are like fossils right now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, it worked. Uh, year after year, the, the channel grew up, grew up, and transformed it into a small studio. Mm -hmm. And now we, we even work with video games, with support from Microsoft, for example. Mm. Oh, cool. Yeah, we saw, I recently bought Dino Hazard, the game. I haven't had a chance to play it yet, but it looks really cool. And I was wondering how on earth you guys figured out how to make a video game that looks so, so well polished, <laughs> especially, you know, like, I don't think either oh, of you. Not, not, not to say, yeah. <laughs> What, yeah, what are okay. you saying? <laughs> what I'm saying is I don't think either of you guys studied how to build games, but like going from it's, paleontology to game design. That's what we do during right. vacation. It's, it's insane. It's insane, it's actually. Now, I'm, the game is still in early access. I work it every one week in every month. I have week cycles, like one week for research, one week for science communication and one week for the game, another <laughs> week to work on different things. That's Looks an awesome great, idea. But don't you look at the code, right? Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes it's it's insane. Sometimes I think how how do I change so dramatically from one subject to another? <laughs> but it's necessary and I always had this passion 
for video games mm. and literature and science fiction. Like Jurassic Park influenced me and many other films and books and in games. In other words, we are video game nerds. Yes, <laughs> so we are very nerds, but nerds that like adventure and yeah. going into the field for, for real, you know? <laughs> mm -hmm. We were in this game thing before creating video games. So since we are used to give classes, we use RPG in the classes and the mm. paleontology classes and the um, undergraduate courses. Like tabletop RPGs. Yeah, yeah. tabletop mm. RPGs. So we travel with the students throughout the geological time to understand better how creatures were in the past and so on. When you started it as a tabletop game, were you you're like playing as a scientist and trying to like solve puzzles with dinosaurs? Is that sort of the format? So in the tabletop RPG, the students are um, time travelers. We call them chrononauts. So mm -hmm. they travel in time, right? And they work for an enterprise from the future that is like mining the deep time to explore minerals, to explore oil, gas, and to um, and to get information about uh, the biological life forms and to throw nuclear garbage also yeah throw mm. in deep garbage time. in deep time and for the pharmacy industry for well to get new medicine and so on using ancient life and the main objective of the students is going back in time to collect the specific assets it could be for example to collect well, an anomalocaris or a baby T-Rex, mm. whatever, that is maybe important for the company, or uh, to understand some geological aspects of the past, because we give classes to uh, biological science students and also to geoscientists. So we have geology students, geophysicists, and so it depends. And that's the whole idea behind, behind the tabletop RPG, which is uh, going to be released, uh, the, the book. So people that want to play also will be possible to acquire the book and play the tabletop RPG. Cool. But then Tito Dino Hazard game has a different framework. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's my RPG. It's more like a JRPG. I really worked on the structure of Chrono Trigger and Earthbound mm -hmm. with several elements of many games, many Zelda games. And, and takes Dino place Crisis. in the beginning of the company, right? <laughs> yeah. When the company was like understanding yeah. how to time travel. Yeah, there is a whole <laughs> universe there that um, connects between, between the, the book, RPG, the, the book, comics, and the, yeah, wow. and the game. So, yeah, it's a full story, and there is a timeline. Uh, it's growing, you know, it's expanding in every release. So I guess people will love it. We are internationalizing now with English publications. So, yeah, the game wow. is already English, but if, if guys are interested about the, the story background, there is the book which is English too, but the warning, it's not localized English, so it may be confusing for some yes. <laughs> yet, but you can read and, and, and understanding that is not localized <laughs> specifically yeah. and enjoy the, the great story behind the game. For our listeners then, if they want to find out more about both of you and your work, where's the best place that they can go online? Okay. 
we have this website, but if I say it is in Portuguese, so it's hard. Colecionadoresdeosos.com. <laughs> if you go there, there is an English translation there. Just turn on and you have our blogs. We have our history, our agenda. You have everything about us. Yeah, <laughs> papers we're publishing. Papers and so, and so on. There is also the Alinis yeah. lab website. Dinolab. So we are working here in the diversity, technology, and osteohistology lab. So Dinolab. And we can find this uh, on the website dinolab.com.br. So you can access all of our last papers and media conferences and so Amazing. And you can also find us in every social media, both the bone collectors and colecionadores and our names. Yeah, we are pretty much active on Twitter. So if you're tweeting around, just follow at Alini M. Gilardi and at Tito.Aureliano and you can find us. Awesome. Great. We'll include all those links in our show notes. Yeah, so definitely. <laughs> people can easily find them. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. That was amazing. And I feel like we only scratched the surface of all your work, but it was great to hear about all the <laughs> breadth of things that you're working on mm -hmm. and maybe some of the stuff that's coming up too. Again, yes. uh, we love your podcast and your work is just amazing. And we want really to invite you to come here and visit our lab and things we are doing. And everyone that's there are listening to us right now, Come visit Brazil and know more about Brazilian dinosaurs, Brazilian paleontology. We have a lot of, a ton of very cool stuff uh, just popping out in Brazilian paleontologists. And well, we wait for you on our social medias. <laughs> <laughs> If you ever want to talk about paleohistology as well, and, and oh. people don't like to talk much about this. I like paleontology. Oh, wait. Yeah, we do. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, we've missed an entire like? topic. <laughs> If you want to, yeah. to talk about paleoistology, just reach out, Tito. Yeah, I love it. I'm passionate about it. Awesome. Guys, thank you again. Thank you so much again, Tito and Aline. It was such a pleasure to talk to you. And I can't wait until one day we can visit Brazil and see all these amazing fossils. Oh, yeah. Yeah, those stories were amazing. And it sounds like a really cool place to do paleontology. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm-hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Stegoceratops, which, if you recognize the name, you might know it's not quite a true dinosaur. This was actually a hybrid dinosaur from Jurassic World. Jurassic World Dominion is coming out soon, so we're covering a lot of the dinosaurs we hadn't yet covered that appear in the films and the books. Yeah, first when I read it, I thought it was Stegoceras, which is a real dinosaur. It's a pachycephalosaurid, but this is not Stegoceras. Stegoceratops is the make-believe one. Yes. So this one is a hybrid of Triceratops and Stegosaurus, as well as some sort of beetle, some sort of snake, and cuttlefish. Because <laughs> they just work those in like for... For the extra superpowers kind yeah. of things that it can do. Like it's poisonous or something, so it needs to be a snake and it can camouflage, so it needs to be a cuttlefish. Those are just my guesses. It's close. One of those was definitely right. <laughs> so it's got this triceratops head with a frill and horns, though it's got longer brow horns than a triceratops, and plates like stegosaurus on its back and thagomizers on the tail. So it looks pretty crazy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think I had a little book as a kid where you could flip pages and you'd change the abdomen, the tail, and the head of different animals. And I feel like that's what everybody does with the dinosaurs. It's like, what if you had the the spikes of a stegosaur and the plates of a stegosaur, but with the horns of a triceratops? Imagine how defensive and amazing that dinosaur would be. I think you made something similar in the Jurassic Lego game. Oh, yeah. And that one, it was because you got like the added features like you could smash through certain twinkly blocks if you have the triceratops head versus the other body parts. You made it really shiny too because it yeah. could do extra stuff when it was shiny. I think that I gave that one raptor legs too so it could like jump extra high. Yeah. Just to make it extra ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> so stegoceratops, sometimes it's seen with a nasal horn, but sometimes it's seen with a nasal boss instead. Just mm. kind of depends on the depiction. Sometimes it's like a pachyrhinosaurus. Like a stegorhinosaurus. <laughs> <laughs> so again, it's a hybrid dinosaur. It's briefly seen on a computer screen in Jurassic World. It was designed by Henry Wu, but it's unclear if it actually got created in the movies. So you might have to just create your own in that Lego game. <laughs> it was going to be in Sector 5 on Isla Nublar in Jurassic World, but that part got cut from the plot. The plan, though, was to reveal that Wu was making more hybrids than just Indominus, but Colin Trevorrow's son suggested taking it out to make Indominus Rex stand out more. 
I, I agree with Colin Trevorrow's son. Mm. <laughs> Indominus Rex was enough of a hybrid dinosaurs. Even I mean, they could have taken that out too, but I guess... Oh, that was a big part of the movie. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of the hybrid dinosaurs. I'd say the less, the merrier. But then Rexy got to save the day. Yeah, I suppose. It could have <laughs> saved the day from all sorts of other different... It could have made it a Giganotosaurus or something. Yeah, We'll we'll just see what happens with Rexy in Dominion. Yeah. So the name Stegoceratops means roofed horned face. Makes sense. Yeah. Stego from Stegosaurus and Ceratops from Triceratops. It's estimated to be about 30 to 33 feet or 9 to 10 meters long and weigh 11 to 15 tons. And it had a large beak. It may have had exoskeletal armor from its beetle elements. It may have been able to see infrared from its snake elements, and it may have been able to camouflage from its cuttlefish elements, which is the one you got right, Garrett. I see. So seeing infrared was the snake thing. Yeah, not venom. Yeah. It also may have elements of a flatfish to extract oxygen from water and jellyfish to be bioluminescent, and that's based on these to animals being depicted as computer renderings next to Stegoceratops. So they gave it gills. Maybe. It's unclear. (laughs) That's so weird. Its front feet had five toes each, and then the back feet had three toes each. So I guess they're going with a Stegosaurus hind leg then, because Triceratops has at least four toes. Yes. Well, if you look at a picture of this, it looks exactly half Triceratops in the front half and half Stegosaurus in the back. How many hand or front leg toes did you say it had? Five. Okay, yeah, that's the same as Triceratops. You can see Stegoceratops in Jurassic World, the game. I guess you have to fuse level 40 Stegosaurus and level 40 Triceratops to get it. It's also in Jurassic World Evolution. It likes to eat rotten wood, but it also eats horsetails and palms. And in the game, it's part of herds of three to eight Stegoceratops. And it makes cattle and groaning sounds in the game. (laughs) They always make everything a cow. (laughs) Everything that eats plants is just a cow, especially the big stuff. Also in the game, Stegoceratops can run through a Ceratosaurus with one of its horns and kill it. Wow. Yeah, pretty powerful. Seems like if Stegoceratops could do that, they could just have Triceratops do it as well. Yeah, maybe you can. I haven't played that game. Oh, and it's in Lego Jurassic World, the Indominus Escape. It's one of the dinosaurs that helps Owen Grady and Claire Deering corral Indominus Rex, which I don't remember. We'll have to rewatch that. Yeah, interesting. And there are, of course, Stegoceratops toys. Yeah, that's what I thought you were going to mention when you said that it was originally going to be in a movie because I heard about that, that we found out about these toys that were being released with one of the Jurassic World movies and it included stegoceratops and everyone was like oh no look at they're fun they're finally doing the crazy (laughs) stuff but then it turned out not to be in the movie i guess that was a a later change Mm -hmm. so yeah now we've we've covered another one of the hybrids from the movies and we'll be covering a few more dinosaurs that appear in the films and books in upcoming episodes and our fun fact of the day is one that i've been thinking about covering for a long time but you mentioned it's a crazy fun fact. It is really amazing. I wanted to have enough time to sort of digest it and read about it and some of the other foundational research which had been done about it. So the fact, simply put, is that dinosaurs can communicate 
through their eggshells with their siblings before hatching. What? So you could think of it as like eggs communicating with each other, but really it's not the eggs communicating. It's the embryos inside the eggs that are communicating with the other embryos. How do we know that? It's really amazing. So one of the first studies or one of the earlier studies in this one was about baby turtles synchronizing their behavior with vibrations. Hmm. So what they found is one of the studies, there's been several studies of turtles, is that these pig-nosed turtles, which are very aptly named, they have what looks sort of like a pig snout on the end of their head. They're pretty cute, actually. So those pig-nosed turtles can hatch really rapidly if nests flood because they would drown if the eggs stayed underwater for a long time. Hard-shelled reptiles in terrestrial nests need to exchange air through the eggshell so they don't suffocate. It's it's literally a boundary. And then sometimes there's a little air cell inside that exchanges the air between inside the egg and outside of the egg. So it is really important that they have oxygen available. Even if they're buried, mm-hmm. they need to have that oxygen available. And if they get completely covered in water, obviously that can't happen. So what they can do is if they get covered in water, they can quickly hatch and then swim up to the surface or dig up to the surface in order to get air. So we've known that for a little while. Later on, we realized that what's really happening with these pig-nosed turtles is that in addition to responding to a lack of oxygen, they can also respond to a vibration response. So if there's a certain type of vibration going on, then that will trigger them to hatch and get out of there quickly as well. Hmm. So it's possible that that initial response is from thunder. They're like thunder buddies in that movie, Ted. (laughs) (laughs) I do. They all work together to protect each other from thunder or from increased heart rates because if the oxygen level drops, the heart rate can increase and then that might cause some kind of vibration. Those are sort of edge hypotheses probably more likely is that one of the eggs notices that there is a reduction in oxygen and starts vibrating. And that vibration is communicated to the other eggs and they sort of spread the message by all starting to vibrate. And then they all get out as a group. Hmm. And that what they've found is that these eggs will hatch faster if you put a group of them together and reduce the amount of oxygen available or you stimulate one of them with a vibration. They'll all start to vibrate and then they get out a lot quicker than if you just do it one-on-one. Interesting. So there's this like group benefit that they get by being together and communicating like, "Uh uh-oh, something's going on. Oh yeah, I think something's going on too. We got to get out of (laughs) here. Than if they're just trying to figure out on their own. Interestingly, there's also a frog that hatches and it hatches early if a snake is attacking a clutch of eggs. They can actually detect the specific vibrations of the snake coming into the nest and then they hatch so they can get out of the eggs that the snake is trying to eat. It's a danger alert. It is, but it's really amazing because those embryos aren't just responding to any vibration to hatch early because they can differentiate the vibrations from that snake versus the vibrations from wind or the vibrations from rain on a nest. Mm -hmm. So they're very sensitive and intelligent about what kind of vibration triggers them to have this behavior. Because you don't want to hatch early. You're better off staying in the egg and developing more. Right. Unless you're about to get eaten. Exactly. And you need to get out. (laughs) Then it's a good time to hatch. So we know that these turtles can hatch early. And there have been similar studies with crocodilians, too, that they can communicate by vibrating and sort of encourage each other to hatch. So scientists have also previously studied 
bird embryos in clutches together and found that some birds make clicking noises when they're getting ready to hatch, possibly to coordinate their hatching because they are laid, you know, birds only have the one ovary and they can only lay one egg a day basically at most. So it takes a few days to lay a whole clutch of eggs and then they might want to coordinate when they're going to hatch or just communicate a little bit about when this hatching is happening can be beneficial for them. So some of them can click. Others make vocalizations that can be heard through the eggshell, sort of like they're just chirping or something through the eggshell and the other birds can hear it. And they found that eggs don't hatch as quickly if they're isolated. So they seem to be using those sounds to coordinate hatching in other bird cases. But the most impressive study, I think, is this new one. It's not really that new anymore. It was published, I think, in 2019 in Nature Ecology and Evolution. And it was written by Jose Noguera and Alberto Valando. And what they were doing is looking at how embryos might recognize predator warning calls from adults. Oh, wow. (laughs) So, it's a whole nother level. Yeah. So, it's not just a response to a, a direct stimulus to the egg, like one of them detects a vibration and tells the other ones, or one of them detects that there's low oxygen and tells the other ones. This one sometimes what we've seen is that an older embryo inside a nest can actually hear a vocalization from its parent outside of the nest or from another animal from the same species, a warning call, for example, and respond to that. So they were studying yellow-legged gulls, which is a seagull in Europe and North Africa. It literally just looks like a regular seagull, but they are amazing. And they wanted to test if those gull eggs or the embryos inside the eggs, I should say, could transmit information between the embryos within a clutch of eggs that they received from a parent. So it's like, can they communicate? Can they get through the grapevine, you know, like play the game of telephone (laughs) of that gossiping information? Like, can they do that as embryos? This is really relevant because these gull embryos can hear starting at around 21 days old. They hatch at about 28 days old, but the eggs are laid about two days apart. So the younger chicks in a clutch might not get the message from the adults. If, say, the adults are doing a warning call and the oldest one is old enough to hear it, but the younger ones can't yet hear it, if they're communicating that message for a few days, then that can get passed along to the younger ones. Or it's just possible that one of them can't hear as well, and maybe it can get a message differently from the egg than it can't get from the adult. So what they did was they went out into the fields and they found these nesting sites of the yellow-legged gulls, and then they took some of the eggs out of the nest, out of various nests, and they put them in a little soundproof box, and then they played a warning call, simulate, you know, just through a speaker in that box for the eggs to hear, And they actually noticed that those eggs began vibrating at pretty specific frequencies. And then they put those eggs back into nests just to see what would happen. (laughs) And what they found is that after reintroducing those vibrating eggs into the nest, the siblings also began vibrating, spreading that information throughout the nest. So they're all vibrating to let each other know, "Uh uh-oh, mama bird is doing a warning call. I didn't hear it but the other egg told me (laughs) that it's happening. So I'm letting you know, and it spreads all the way through until they're all vibrating. They all know that this warning has been given by the adults. The really crazy thing about it is that when they analyzed these embryos and really when they analyzed the chicks after they hatched, they found significant changes in both the gene expression 
in like what DNA was actually expressed, like what genes are being expressed in the chicks. So like physical changes in them as well as their behavior. So compared to chicks that hadn't heard warning calls from parents or siblings, just like other ones randomly throughout that nesting site, they found that the exposed chicks had higher levels of corticosterone, which is a stress hormone. Mm-hmm. Not surprising if you're in a embryo in a super vulnerable state yes. and there's warning calls going off, you might be a little stressed. They also incubated longer by about a day, but the biggest effects were actually behavioral. So they vocalized much less after they were hatched, about twice a minute for a normal unexposed egg mm-hmm. or chick, I should say, versus less than once a minute for one of these eggs that was warned about predators being around. If you're quieter, maybe the predator won't hear you. Exactly. Yes. They also crouched much faster after hearing a warning call from a parent now that they're hatched. Hmm. So that is something that all of the chicks will do. If they hear a warning call, they know instinctively to crouch down. But in ones that weren't exposed to the warning calls as a chick, it took them about 20 seconds for them to squat down, whereas it took less than 10 seconds for the eggs that were exposed. But this also applied not just to the ones that had heard the warning call, but to the ones that got the message from the vibration from the other one. So it's not just like, oh, I recognize that sound from when I was an embryo. It's something more innate. It is deep in their bones. It really is. (laughs) Yeah, they're getting this message. It's crazy. Another interesting one was they had a shorter tarsus by a few percent, which is the lower part of the leg and actually a lot of the leg in terms of height. The researchers didn't offer an explanation of why that might be, but I think presumably it's to help them hide better in a nest because their main defense is crouching. If they're also shorter in the first place, then that would make them less vulnerable. So to summarize, these dinosaurs have some amazing ability to communicate even while they're still embryos, and they can actually change what they're going to be like when they hatch if they get warned about predators even within a week of their hatching. Because remember, these are they can't get the message, or at least some of them didn't get the message until they were 21 days old, and mm-hmm. they hatch at 28 days, and yet they still it are... changed everything. Yeah. Yeah, and it's really cool, too, because the changes actually go forward. So that tarsus development, it didn't wasn't that different when they hatched, but at a difference between a one-day-old chick and a five-day-old chick, the five-day-old chicks of the group that were exposed to the warning calls or exposed to eggs that were exposed to warning calls all had the shorter legs. Wow. So it was changing the way. That was the thing about the DNA. When they looked at the DNA, they could tell that there were changes in different genes being expressed. Some of those related to the height of the chick development after they hatched. That is a crazy fun fact. (laughs) It is. So it's basically like this adjustable feature that these dinosaurs have in responding to whether or not there are raiding predators present when they're going to hatch. And the reason that's really useful is because, at least in this case, for the yellow-legged gulls, the main predator that comes after them are minks, and the minks aren't always there. So when the minks aren't there, it's better to have longer legs, presumably, and to make noises so the parents remember you and bring you food and all that kind of stuff and to stay upright so the parents can see you and, you know, crouching down isn't super important. But when there are minks around, all that it all reverses, right? It's better to be quiet. It's better to get down quickly. It's better to be shorter. And they can actually make that change by hearing from their parents that there are minks around while they're in an embryo. (laughs) 
<laughs> and they could spread that message between each other, including to ones that couldn't hear yet. So it's just, it's so cool. And I can't even imagine all the situations this could have been useful in the Mesozoic. Like mm-hmm. you've got little sauropods and they can feel the footsteps of a Tyrannosaur or, or you know, a, a Giganotosaurus or something. And those now vibrations. Now is the time to run. <laughs> yeah. Or stay in the egg because he's actually stayed in the egg for like a day longer too. Oh, yeah. So it could be like, you know, everybody wait. <laughs> Hide <laughs> in place. Yeah. <laughs> Or, yeah, or it could be, you know, like developing different muscles to like run faster or grow faster or who knows what sort of changes could be planned for if you know as an embryo that this world you're going into has a a specific predator around. Yeah. Amazing. Well, that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thank you again for listening and If you haven't yet already, consider joining our community on patreon.com slash inodino. Thanks again, and until next time.